Hi everyone, and welcome to Cuspis. I started this podcast because I was endlessly fascinated by young people and the cultural influences that new generations have. I wasn't sure to what extent age was a reasonable framework to talk about things like politics, music, art, or the economy. But as a cusper myself, trapped between millennials and Gen Z, I often found myself torn between tribes. So as the cusper generation comes of age, I want to ask, what does it mean for our world? In today's episode, we'll be talking about literature, the ways in which we transmit ideas from one group to another, the ways in which we record our feelings, and the ways in which we bond over the things that we've read and that we share. Today, I'm joined by a good friend and someone who I have confirmed can read, Maddie. Maddie, how are you doing today? Hi, what's up? My name is Maddie. I'm 25. and I'm- <laughs> Oh, you sound like you're doing um, an episode of MTV's Cribs. <laughs> Sorry, just Hi, welcome to my Cribs. Look at all my books. 10 years later. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, Cribs should come back. I feel like Cribs is sort of coming back, but um, instead it's like Architectural Digest on YouTube doing tours of celebrities' houses. Yes. The one that I'm particularly obsessed with is a Jared... Oh, shite. What's his name? The guy who plays Dean Winchester on Supernatural has a massive house in Texas somewhere. And he said, like, oh, we got this house because uh, we were just driving past it one day and we thought it was nice. So we called the owners and were like, sell us your house. And they were like, it's not for sale, mate. And we were like, yeah, it is, because we're going to give you like a million squillion dollars. And then they just bought this house. And now they filled it with really, really eclectic, bonkers modern art from loads of local Texan artists. But it will just be Daniil Ackles and Jensen Ackles. That's what they're called. I was going to say, the fact that you forgot his name. (laughs) I know, it's really embarrassing. 17-year-old me is shooting 25-year-old me in the head right now for forgetting Jensen Ackles' name. But um, yeah, he just like opens a door and he's like, oh, my wife is particularly fond of this piece. And it's like a llama made out of straw with flowers woven into its bottom or just something completely bonkers. Or like there's an entire wall where you just look into a tiny viewfinder on the wall and there's like a miniature picture embedded in the stonework. And you're like what the fuck is this? I'm like, if Dean Winchester walked into this house, he'd immediately burn it down. <laughs> but real life Jensen Ackles is like, yes! <laughs> this is exactly what we want. I know, I love it. Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. So, um, so okay, so Maddie, this is your first time on Cuspers. Uh, Cuspers is a podcast about those people that are on the cusp. So we're kind of in that age group, I suppose. Mm, yeah. uh, do you consider yourself a millennial? Do you consider yourself Gen Z? I say I would just consider myself a millennial, I think, I mean, firstly, because isn't the general understanding of millennials that it's anyone born prior to about 1996 or seven or thereabouts? Um, I would say like the main way that I would identify millennials is that um, they're like the last people who grew up with the internet, but before having mobile phones just ubiquitously part of their day-to-day lives. Um, and also I think just because of the point that we joined the web that I think older millennials would say very much younger millennials joined the web around the point of web 2.0, um, you know, like the, the death of old social media, you know, geocities and live journal and all of those old like forums and internet chat boards, but on the brink of the new wave of social media, like Facebook and Instagram and all those other sorts of things. Um, so I think that's where we're kind of sat as younger millennials. But I also think because we were on the internet in the early noughties, 
we sort of got piggybacked along with that younger generation. And it's not really, I don't think, until maybe the last five years or so that people have started talking about Gen Z or Zoomers really as a thing. Prior to that, it was all just millennials. So we just kind of got lumped in with them. Yeah. Well, you can you can tell that um, that our time has passed because they are definitely cooler than we are now. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Like they're like, you know, going viral on TikTok and leading climate protests. And we're just like, the world is dead. Have some memes. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think you're so right about, you know, the that technology is a great way to differentiate the generations now in a way that maybe for previous generations, it would have been major world events. So, mm. you know, the generations that lived through important wars or the Great Depression. One of the things I find really interesting about that, though, is those events often change the ways in which people thought about themselves or the way that they should organize their societies mm. because dramatic circumstances, I think, forced them to revisit fundamental notions they'd taken for granted. Um, and it allowed the formation of whole new identities because then there would suddenly be a new world that needed new things to happen. You know, teenagers didn't really exist until the post-war era. And we then are now kind of coming of an age and you talked about the web 2.0, the whole thing of web 2.0 was you could be the product on the web. It wasn't just yeah. you talking about something else. You could talk about yourself. Yeah. And I think where both millennials and Gen Z really kind of took advantage of that is the ability to completely form your own identity online. Um, yeah, I loved the internet. I graduated onto social media um, just around the time that Bebo was having its last hurrah. So I was never allowed to have like MSN or anything like that. I've got a ranty diary entry from when I was 13 being like mum and dad say I can't have a Bebo account but I don't care I'm going to make one anyway and they can't stop me <laughs> and then six months later Bebo's fucking dead and everyone's jumped ship onto Facebook um and yeah and now Facebook is uncool right I know who uses Facebook only boomers who want to share minions memes and 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 people use Facebook to share important life events. It's like you're allowed to use Facebook if you're young, if there's yeah. been a birth, death or wedding. Yeah. Or if you want to invite people to shit. Like I would still, if I had any kind of plan to make an online event of any sort, I would still immediately go to Facebook to organize that and for community groups. But I think, yeah, over the last five years, my use of Facebook has gone from life things less and less more towards leftist shit posting meme groups. I'm now a member of 1,000 plus terrible groups that all have names like group where we pretend that we all work at Chernobyl. <laughs> and, and it's like, Sergey, I'm just going to react to four. See you after the break. Um, and like, you know, El Dorado gold posting where people just post terrible memes about the road to El Dorado and so on and so forth. And it's really wonderful. Um, yeah. So that, for, I think for me was... A really big shift in my Facebook usage that had a massive impact on me. I think one of the things that's really interesting about that is that when you're on the internet, it can also be a one-way communication. So yeah. when you're talking to someone in a in person, or maybe like we're doing now, it's a dialogue between two people. But actually, on the internet, it's you say something and put it out there. It's a status or a thread or a post, 
and then people respond to it. But you've already set all of the parameters yes. of that discussion. Yes, but the thing is that when it's then out in a post, the death of the author 100% applies to everything you've said because anything that you might have meant by the way that you've written it is completely irrelevant to how people are then going to interpret it and take it. And that is so interesting. It's, it's like we're constantly writing angry little letters to each other and then like posting them through like letterboxes like, how dare you? Um, but yeah, and it, it's just so fascinating that like the human brain does react to the written word in a very different way than it does to when you're able to actually have a, um, a immediate dialogue. And obviously you can have a relatively instantaneous dialogue on social media, but the written word, there is something about it that's permanent um, that makes interpretation of it so much less in the power of the person who's written it at times than the way it's then going to be perceived and handled and potentially dragged back up 10 years later to get you cancelled and fired from the third Guardians of the Galaxy movie or whatever it is. So that actually brings us pretty nicely onto the nominal topic of this podcast, which is literature. And I think that the way that cuspers have responded to literature, again, because of the internet, has really changed a lot. You know, we find out about books we wouldn't before. We write fan fiction and we post it on LiveJournal, or at least I did. Um, and some of us even write 140 plus reviews on Goodreads, Paper Tiger Maddie. <laughs> I, I did. Oh, Jesus, that's a lot of reviews. <laughs> yeah, it is a lot of reviews. Um, so, you know, talk to me about writing. How do you think that literature authorship has changed? You said that the death of the author exists on the internet because social media posts, once someone puts it out there, no longer bear any relevance to intent. Well, isn't the same exactly true of the stuff that we read when we go on Twitter and we tag the author in the conversation, but actually we're just screaming at the wall rather than actually engaging them? Do you mean in terms of book reviews? Are you saying that my book reviews are too ranty? <laughs> There's nothing I love better than a book review that absolutely drags everything about the book. Um, I Me, do, uh, Honestly, wait, can I just, before you go on, yeah. I also love ranty book reviews. I think if I were an author, I would treasure the most critical reviews. If mm. someone was incredibly brutal, I'd frame it. <laughs> That's such a wholesome way of looking at it. It is... The, the conversation between reader and writer is is such an interesting one and it's one that is constantly creating like massive drama on incredibly niche echo chambers like book Twitter um, and other places where literature nerds like to go on social media. Um, there's this constant ongoing battle between authors and reviewers um, for where people kind of have you know picked camps over the years. Um, authors being like, I'm being personally attacked by this review, blah, 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 this is so mean. And then book reviewers being like, we have a right to talk shite about your shitey book. Um, maybe don't go like looking for your bad reviews. But then also on the other hand, don't like tag your author in the book review you wrote that tells them that their book is terrible because that's also really unthoughtful and unkind. Um, so you have all kinds of crazy stuff. Like um, there was this famous thing Back, oh god it must be like 10 years ago now where Anne Rice who wrote uh, Interview of a Vampire left this amazing Amazon comment on an Amazon review of one of her books which devastatingly has been deleted since um, you can probably find it somewhere 
uh, where someone gave her book a one-star review and wrote a really long review why, and then she wrote an re- even longer comment back on their review saying, you are interrogating the text from the wrong perspective. <laughs> I then read an incredible blog on her website, which again has been deleted. And this pains me every day where she wrote about how her works require no editing because all of her sentences come out of her brain perfectly formed onto the page. And I was just like, what? Anyway, yeah. And then you have people like this absolutely um, stupidly awful woman whose name I can't even remember because she's irrelevant. Um, who a few years ago catfished and then stalked a book reviewer who wrote a mildly negative review about her. Um, I think it was on Goodreads. Um, This author then followed, like drove halfway across the United States in a car to her house and then like left her anonymous phone calls um, and then tried to pretend that she was the victim as though she hadn't stalked, harassed and in very creepily um, bullied this book reveal off the internet. So there's always some drama about, um, yeah, what's the relationship between the author and the work, you know, um, because this author, Brandon Sanderson, is a raging homophobe, is therefore the Mistborn series cancelled forever. Um, Yeah, sure, why not? There's plenty of other fancy books to go read it. Can you divorce the author from the work if you think it's a really good book? Is it rude to give a book a one-star review because you know the author is a massive flaming racist even though you've not actually read all of the book yet? And I love those kinds of um, discussions. I think they're really interesting. So um, I did a bit of a Google because I'm a, a, a young person and... Kathleen Hale is a crazy stalker, yeah, is the really, BuzzFeed story. Yeah, she's trying to, like, reclaim the title of crazy stalker by publishing a short story collection called Kathleen Hale is a crazy stalker. But also, the re- reason this came out is because she wrote an essay about it in The Guardian. I know. It was really controversial at the time. I mean, it still is. Like, what, a, what an a-hole. Oh, I like that that's the word that you're censoring for this podcast. I don't know. Are we allowed to swear on cuspers? Well, I'm not monetized yet, so I think it's okay. What a Um, For my listeners, is a word that means... Oh, what does it mean? I don't know. I'm not smart enough to think Vagina. of a definition. is a woman's fanny. It's your Mary, your tuppence, your sausage wallet. Your poonani, whatever it is that you call that dear, delightful foo far down there, um, please know that back in the good old days of Anglo-Saxon Britain, it was called a cunt, and you should have been proud of it. Thank you for. I feel like. Um, does that make you a sexist now? Are you cancelled? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 Nish, no. Oh, I've already like cancelled myself seventeen times this week. <laughs> from terrible things that I've said. I don't want to be cancelled on your literature podcast. Book Twitter cancels everyone like at least 17 times a day. So I'm definitely going to get cancelled either way once someone gets hold of this episode. Um, so speaking of books, so one of the things I find really interesting is the ways in which cuspers have been more willing to interact with the worlds that are being constructed for them. So not just talking back about the author and you know you talk about reviewers 
I'm not even sure who is a reviewer these days because any of us can be. Um, but also just things like writing fan fiction and then sharing that and then your own fan fiction can make you a best-selling author. Like E.L. James wrote a Twilight fan fiction. What was, her, what was her fanfic name? Do you remember? No, I don't remember. Her name was Snow Queen's Ice Dragon. Oh, wow. Snow Queen's Ice Dragon sounds like the best friend of Raven Dementia Darkness Way. <laughs> Whatever she's called. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, Snow Queen's Ice Dragon sounds like what my Neopets were called. Oh, oh Neopets. Oh, I had a Neopet. Oh. No, but okay, so talk to me about fanfiction. Um, okay, so I am obsessed with fanfiction and I've been reading it kind of voraciously, I think, since I was about 15. Um, I know we use the term fanfiction and think of it as a relatively modern term, which it is, but um, technically anything that's just a rework of a previous work is fanfiction. And the only reason we distinguish it and give it this name, and, oh, it's not, you know, legitimate fiction, it's fun fiction, is because we're within the 70-year time frame or whatever it is of copyright law. You know, Sherlock on the BBC is just Sherlock Holmes fan fiction, but no one cares because Arthur Conan Doyle's been dead for 100 years. Same for, like, Wide Sargasso Sea won a load of awards. That's just Jane Eyre fan fiction. Literally anything else you can think of. The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller is... Iliad fan fiction, but again, no one cares because Homer, if he even existed, has been dead for like 2,500 years. Um, but the modern term fan fiction uh, is actually something that we have to thank um, Star Trek fans for. Whoop, whoop. I've actually got this little book here, this really dogged copy of um, Star Trek The New Voyages, which is a really old book published in 1976. It's a compilation of Star Trek fan fiction writing. I'll just read you from something from the from the forward. For seven lean years, there was no new Star Trek fiction published, with a single exception of the James Blish novel, Spock Must Die! <laughs> <laughs> but Star Trek fiction, like the show itself, never did die. It too was kept alive by the people who loved it. Um, that story is told in Star Trek Lives, which gives some reasons for that love and undertakes the first serious analysis of the Star Trek fan fiction that was being written in those years, um, back end of the 60s, early 70s. It can be called, quote, fan fiction, unquote. It is that, but it is more than that. It is simply Star Trek fiction. It is fan fiction of the kind that people write for one single simple reason. They cannot help themselves. It was not written for money. Yet many professional writers and those on the way to becoming professionals wrote it as cheerfully and as passionately as those who had never written anything before, even knowing that it could never be published, except in small fan magazines, quote, fanzines, unquote, put out for and by fans. Um, and I don't know if this is the first time that we've got a published work and a published book using the term fan fiction, but I'm willing to put a little bit of money on it that it is. Um, yeah, and I think really obviously although fan fiction was around kind of in the 20th century especially with star trek um like i've just said the internet obviously gave it a whole new lease of life and i just think that it's one of the most fun and fulfilling ways to engage with any work of literature or tv show or movie that you like because you can just take the characters and the ideas and the things that you loved about the show Again, subscribing to Death of the Author, be like, 
I didn't like that ending and I reject it and replace it with my own and do whatever you like with those characters and give them all the happy endings that you ever wanted or all of the coffee shop alternate universe romances, all of the love triangles that you never got to see. Uh, yeah, and it's fantastic. So what do you think of the people who take sort of the opposite stance? So a lot of authors, for example take very strong stances on um, fan fiction. So J.K. Rowling um, famously was very sort of pro-fan fiction and sort of gave it her blessing as long as there was nothing in it that was sort of, um, I, I guess, I guess that sexualized children or was, you know, illegal or <laughs> promoted, promoted okay. stuff like that, which uh, frankly... Have you read the one about some Hermione in the sorting hat? Do you mean Hermione X sorting hat? Oh, yes. <laughs> because in fan fiction, everything's a multiplication. Yeah. And it's just. It's either a division, it's Spock slash Kirk, or Hermione X sorting hat, X Snape, X Draco Malfoy, X Ginny Weasley, X Whomping Willow. And like, be- X Whomping Willow? Oh, honey, no. <laughs> 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 and yes, but uh, and also like uh, real multiplication and division, it rapidly runs away from most authors. Uh, <laughs> it comes out of control, impossible to pass, and gives you a headache by the time you finish with it. Yeah, but I mean, so, but back to my earlier question. So J.K. Rowling has generally been quite pro fan fiction, except where she thought that it might encourage children to read very explicit or illicit content. On the flip side of that, you've got people like George R. R. Martin who hate fan fiction. Like they think it's copyright infringement. They take legal action, and he actually very interestingly says, in perhaps a direct opposite to the forward that you just read out from, that it's a poor exercise for people who aspire to write. Like the number of incredibly famous and successful authors who a started off writing fan fiction, uh, b still write fan fiction. Um, is just endless and to to pretend that you know learning and copying in a way from someone else isn't how you begin to learn a skill is just stupid I read this absolutely terrible picture book when I was younger um, the message of which was like real artists never copy I'm like absolutely piss off me what do you think you're doing when you're giving a child a picture of like a horse and you're like draw a horse you learn to copy so that you can emulate the style you can learn you can experiment in a safe way where you're not putting your own ideas on the line but you're within a familiar world using familiar characters and you can pick up those skills and learn those ways of working um, and then those skills are 100 transferable to your own work um, and i think anyone who's gone to the effort of writing a book which is incredibly hard and then publishing should be honored that there's someone out there who cares so much about the characters that they created that they wanted to give them another story and carry that on and make them do something else. I just, I haven't got any time for authors that don't approve of fan fiction, that don't actively celebrate it as one of the most powerful ways that a reader and, a, um, and that someone can honour a creator and show their love and their passion for a creator. And, and also, I think it is so often tied to our cl- like class perceptions of what is respectable and non-respectable. So, for example, if you go all the way back to the Renaissance, it was incredibly common for authors and painters to take pupils 
their literal job would be to make copies of their works and to learn by copying and then develop their own style. And, you know, so, for example, Leonardo da Vinci's pupils, most of whom he also slept with, like Melzi and Salai, they ended up becoming <laughs> important artists in their own right. And uh, so Salai is a particularly good one because he painted this thing called the Monavanna, which is now understood as, you know, one of the great works of um, of Italian um portraiture at the time and it's a mona lisa in nude and you know the only difference between that and a ship fan fiction where the characters have sex is the social norms of the time and the fact that he's a better painter than most of those people are writers yet 100 percent. and i think anyone like george or martin martin um should go and have a look at the fact that you know William Shakespeare, for God's sake, half of his plays are just reworkings of Italian originals that he, like, found, thought were cool, and then were like, well, I'll change this a little bit, put in some silly scenes, uh, and then call it Othello, and then the audiences of London will lap it up. And now all the scholars are like, oh, William Shakespeare, oh, yes, the greatest English literature, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, he was writing Italian fan fiction. What do you guys think he was doing? So I completely agree with you. It's just all about the cultural norms at the time. And for literature in the Renaissance, in fact, all the way from the medieval period, right up until probably when people started mass producing books on the printing press, marginalia, writing on a written copy of a work, annotating over it and putting your own interpretation onto things was the number one way that people interpreted, um, absorbed and then passed on literature. And that's why if you actually talk to any kind of scholar of literature from the medieval period or who's like looking at ancient, you know, biblical manuscripts and things, it's all about the the conversation that's going on in the margins of a book um, and the main text itself and how as things were copied, things are getting changed. Um, and, you know, in the Renaissance, one of the famous ways we are taught to believe that lots of people did engage with literature is that they'd have literary circles where they'd all copy out bits of a book and then like discuss it and pass it around and you know have letters going from person to person and that's exactly like an internet forum where you're like rping harry potter and then someone's you know adding luna onto the end or whatever um for the benefit of our listeners what's rping role playing um so that's like a specific form of fun fiction writing where you are role-playing a particular character you write a passage in that character um and then someone replies to you writing a passage in their character um i was briefly part of a really large um and really quite successful and cool harry potter role-playing website i can't remember what it's called um where you would sign up as a student you create your profile you get sorted and then you would navigate around the castle so it kind of almost like a cross between an morpg and a forum and then you would like rp with the other characters you were coming into contact with it was really 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 cool just before we move on to the next segment i thought it might be nice for us to do a lightning round of books that we want to recommend and that we can talk about so i have three books here with me um have you got have you got three books with you uh yep Oh, I've got more than three books, Nish, and I can't pick. Hang on, I'm picking, I'm culling, I'm culling them, I'm picking, I've got two, and yeah, three, there we go. Three slash four. One of them small, so it doesn't count. 
Well, <laughs> okay, well, you could, we can discuss your three and a half books. And yeah. I'm sure if any of our listeners want to learn more about the books you might recommend, if they enjoy the books you're about to recommend and want to get more recommendations, then they can reach out to you. Where can they find you on, on the internet? Um, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Paper Tiger Maddie. Um, just add me on Instagram. I'm the Wuzzy. None of my social media handles make any sense, and that's because I haven't changed them in the last decade. Um, or follow me on Goodreads. Goodreads Paper Tiger Maddie on Goodreads. Okay, <laughs> let us let us get started. Which is the first book you're recommending? Right, the first book I'm recommending is Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clark. Uh, this was published almost 20 years ago now. It's an absolute monster of a book. It's a thousand pages long. It's also one of the most incredible books that I've ever read in my entire life. It's an alternate historical fantasy set in the Napoleonic Wars, which is just my all-time favourite period of British history. Um, following the return of English magic to England, um, it follows the life of two magicians, Jonathan Strange and Mr Norrell. Um, and it's very much a pastiche of literature at the time. So it's written as though it's been written by Jane Austen. You know, she uses those turns of phrase um, and the book is very complex and it's all got the kind of um, the, the, the parlour comedy and the satire wound up in it. Um, and it's also an incredibly thoughtful and beautiful exploration of English folklore and history. The alternate history that's woven into the novel um, actually made me cry more than once. There's all these beautiful references and footnotes to books that don't exist littered throughout the novel you know there'll be a little explanation of oh this is a, fa- a reference to the famous folktale and then it will be some absolutely balmy thing that she's just made up herself um and part of the reason i love it so much is that it creates an alternative magical mythology for england um that revolves around a figure called the raven king who appears in the time of the norman conquest uh with a mysterious fey army at his back and conquers all of Britain between the Tweed and the Trent. Um, And I'm from Derby, uh, and I live in Newcastle, so I like that very much. Um, And uh, the seat of his power is Newcastle. Um, And so in this book, people in the north still um, waiting for the return of the rightful king, the Raven King. And it's just an absolutely magnificent, really, really funny story. I feel like if i hadn't seen it i would be much more likely to actually read it based on your description but that thing is huge (laughs) oh my goodness if you are really put off by the fact that it's a thousand pages long please please go and watch the wonderful bbc miniseries um and if you like the miniseries you'll love the book cool so that brings me to my first recommendation and my first book is in a lot of ways, the exact opposite of the book that you have <laughs> just recommended. Um, and it is actually a book of Japanese literature. That This is obviously an English translation by an author called Genki Kawamura. And it's called If Cats Disappeared from the World. And this is an incredibly short book. It has 200 short pages um, in it. And the pages, it's... Honestly, it's a flyby read. I would maybe even say that this flirts the line of just like novel novella insofar as such distinctions are useful and not just things that exist in order to create multiple bestseller lists and therefore grease the wheels of capitalism because the publishing industry is still business. (laughs) Um, But the premise of this is, so there's a young-ish man and he finds out that he's going to die because he's terminally ill very shortly. 
and the devil appears so it's a book of magical realism which is not set in a fantasy world but it's set pretty much in our regular world with mm. small elements of fantasy that then imagine it in new ways so the devil appears and the devil um for some reason always wears hawaiian shirts wildly unclear why never actually explained <laughs> um so the devil appears and the devil tells him that he can live one more day if he picks something to vanish from the world each chapter is one of the things that he consents to have vanished from the world so he consents to have movies disappear from the world and <gasps> movies have just never existed in this world so no one knows no! what they're missing or then he consents to have like telephones disappear from the world and so it's a very short novel that you don't realize is asking all of these probing questions about what is important in the world i think he responds to it in a very authentic way because a lot of the things when faced with that selfish choice he's able to rationalize as being selfless if phones disappeared from the world he says well people might not have mobile phones but they'd still be able to email one another they'd still mm-hmm. be able to you know go to each other's houses and send each other letters maybe people wouldn't feel like they were trapped by their phone and their boss might be able to call them at any moment maybe they'd spend a little bit more time talking to each other on the subway instead of just commuting in in silence and misery but and you know so so i think that it's a really interesting observational book and at the end i think it's quite touching so i highly recommend it it's a very short read um and i think it's a very sort of compactly written and beautiful little book nice. so on to the second <clears throat> recommendation what you got for me okay so my second recommendation is a young adult sci-fi fantasy thriller queer romance that i've been raving incessantly about since it came out in february 2019 and if you read one young adult young, if you read one young adult novel this year please read the fever king by victoria lee it is absolutely phenomenal What's that word when you like dissect? Oh, yeah, it's a really interesting dissection of current politics. Um, It's set in a post-apocalyptic dystopia where a magical virus has ravaged the world. um, And as a result, surviving countries are grasping quite hard towards authoritarianism. um, And there's a conflict. It's set in a country where it's it's set in a country called Carolinia, a state that has come out of Carolina and surrounding areas in the United States. Um, and the main character is a boy called Noam. He's a Jewish um, lad. Um, he's Jewish and he's also Latino um, and he's also bi and he's a refugee and he's trying to take the system down from the inside. That's what he wants to do. Um, but he then realises that he himself has become a carrier of this magical virus and he's co-opted into this government um, system where they train up witchings as they're called um, to then basically become like the fascist army of the state and it's all about his relationship to power um, him basically falling for one of the other boys that he uh, is on the program with um, and then his uh, trying to position himself within the government of whether he can do that and still be an ally to the refugee community that he's come from um, and whether he can actually trust any of the people around him. It's so thrilling. It's so tense. It's terrifying. It's also really, really brutally good and will rip out your heart and trample all over it. And um, So one that I actually don't know if it would make a huge difference whether you read a review before or after, uh, and this is my second recommendation. <gasps> Convenience is, uh, Store Woman! convenience store woman convenient 
Um, and I love this book. Me It's too. A Do you have your copy with you? I do have my copy. You have the pink copy, and I have the yellow copy. It's so cute. Look at the little fishy with the soy sauce in the fishy. It's so good. So, for people who live under rocks and consequently missed the arrival of this book into the um, literosphere, this is a book about essentially a woman who works. Part time. Well, she works at a convenience store, which is something that the author Saika Murata used to do part time, and it's about how many of the things that we're led to believe are unusual are just different. And this is a person who believes exactly the same things that the reader, I think, instinctively often believes about her about the reader, and she's perfectly happy with her world that makes sense in her way. And in the sort of confines of the convenience store, where things are quite regimented and the rules are very sort of easy to follow and understand, it's also absurdly funny. It's so so nutty and deadpan and observational, and very little happens in it. But that I think is almost part of the point of the book because you、mm. really get to luxuriate in the thought processes of、um, Keiko, who's the who's the main character. And、It、I finished this book. Also, make you nostalgic as fuck for Seven Eleven or Family Mart. My God, when I was reading, I could almost hear the little door chimes in my head, like dee 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 dee, and I could like see the sushi sandwiches before me, like what? <laughs> <laughs>、um, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think this is the sort of book that, if anyone's in in lockdown and they found themselves with an extra. Hour in the day because they don't have to commute to work. This is the sort of book that you could start and finish, you know, in a couple of days without really、mm-hmm. having to dedicate any time to it that you haven't already got.、Yeah. So, for someone who is maybe wanting to get into modern literature or where literary fiction is heading, I think this is a really good introduction, and、um, I definitely think it's the sort of thing that's going to make you feel all the feels. I love it. I love it a lot. Yeah, I totally agree with the way you just said that because、um, I'm someone who is a massive genre nerd and is incredibly terrified by literary fiction. So something that's、um, only a hundred pages long and is ultimately a very happy and optimistic book is exactly what I want from literary fiction.、Um, so I blasted through it and I absolutely adored it. It's lovely. It's just pure gorgeousness. Okay, so which is your final book? Oh no, you have a you have a fourth one. Which is your penultimate book? <laughs> right, so I'm going to introduce. I'm going to do these ones quicker. Right, so my penultimate book、um, is a another historical fantasy called Dread Nation by Justina Ireland. This is an alternate history. You can see that I have a running theme here.、Um, alternate history book set in about the same time period as the United States Civil War. Um, and the main character is an African American girl who goes to a school where black kids are trained up to be zombie hunters because the Civil War and racism all got kind of turned on its head、uh, when the zombie plague attacked. So now、um, African Americans not only have to grapple with racial violence and institutional oppression, they also have to grapple with zombie plagues,、um, and it's just the most interesting. Kind of, it absolutely does not pull any punches.、Um, the heroine is really gritty, and she's not afraid to make really difficult choices to survive.、Um, and it's also a really hard-nosed look at what it's actually like to、um, 
potentially to live through a zombie plague, but also how the kind of pervasive horror, I think, of zombie novels really translates very well to giving sort of an uneducated white person like me a really good understanding of what the fear and dread must be like to live in a society where your life can constantly be violently exterminated for no reason other than just because people can and no one's going to care. Um, and it's a rollicking good adventure. It's a Western, it's a feminist Western, uh, and it's absolutely fantastic. Oh, incredible. And I love that you have a running theme for your books. I also have a running theme for my books, which makes me wonder if after this, we shouldn't record a little segment where I say, what's your favorite genre? Let's <laughs> talk about three books to get people started. Um, but so my third one, and this is also in the genre of short, snappy Japanese literary fiction. Um, this book is actually from the... <laughs> okay, maybe my genre is a little bit more niche than your genre. <laughs> No, I think we've both like pigeoned ourselves. We've both pigeoned ourselves really well into like millennial book genres. I'm like balls deep in the feminist young adult historical fantasy subgenre, and you're like the Japanese snap, snappy little lit fic with cute covers genre. Yeah, and also I think the thing I like about Japanese literature in particular is that because I read them in English and they've been translated what ends up happening is the writing becomes even more straightforward, which is the sort of thing that when English language authors now start doing, it's celebrated a lot. But actually, this is the sort of thing that is a natural consequence of translation from one language into another where mm. you lose a lot of that context. Yeah. Um, and so I just think that they read excellently and it sort of fulfills or like it scratches the itch that's um, left by all of the English language lit fic I'm also reading. But okay, so this is a book um, from the 1960s. It's called Beauty and Sadness. Hmm. And there's a couple of things about it that's quite interesting. So firstly, it's a book that I think has running themes of tradition and modernness. And that modernity is what to us is now actually half a century in the past. So hmm. it already kind of inspires a very, I think quite a great way of uh, contemplating that time because you simultaneously see someone looking forward into the future and as the reader get to provide the additional lens of looking back into the past. Um, secondly, it is a book called Beauty and Sadness and I think it has very good ways of unpacking both of those things, um, which is not to say it's a particularly depressing book, although it is quite depressing, yes. Uh, <laughs> but it, it's, also, it's also very beautiful. So sad things can be beautiful and I don't think we need to be afraid of reading them sometimes um, but the plot is great so basically it's a writer who wants to reunite with a lover from his adolescence um, who's now a famous artist and a recluse living with her female protege um, and then the three of them have this like unfolding um conflict, relationship, drama between them. And it's this, like, woman, her ex-lover, her present lover, and the ways in which their history provides importance to one, but the kind of passion that they have provides the importance to the other. And again, it's a very short read. You can get through it quite quickly. I think that also means it wastes very little time on stuff that's unimportant. And unlike at least convenience store woman, I think it has certainly got more climactic moments to it 
Um, so I would consider this a really good way to get introduced to, um, well, to get introduced to Japanese literature in general, but also specifically the work of Kawabata, who's the who's the author of this book and has published loads of great works. And feel like I'm very clever. He won the Nobel Prize. He won the Nobel Prize for literature, actually. Yeah. Okay, so those are my three books, um, all of which are from the incredibly accessible genre of English translations of Japanese litfic books. Maddie, what is your 0.5? My 0.5 recommendation um, is this incredibly short but sweet book called The Living Mountain by Nan Shepherd. Nan Shepherd, yep. Yeah, this book has had a massive renaissance over the sort of last 10 years. I think largely because it's been massively championed by Robert McFarlane, who's one of Britain's foremost um, nature writers. He's written The Old Ways and um, a bunch of other books. He's really, really popular. He's also a um, geography lecturer at Cambridge, isn't he? Something like that. Anyway, he writes absolutely lyrically and beautifully about the British landscape in a way that really finds the magic um, in this kind of nexus between biology um geology but also historiography and folklore um that celebrates the wonder of science and absolutely fuses together scientific literature nature writing and just an actual sense of belief in the magic of the world which i really love and is also exactly why i love jonathan strange and mr norrell so these are kind of still a little bit related um, and Robert McFarlane talks a lot about how The Living Mountain by Nan Shepherd is a massive inspiration for him. It was written by um, a Scottish woman in the late 1940s who lives in the Cairngorms uh, in Scotland. And it's basically a love letter to the mountain. Um, and it's absolutely beautiful. I've never read anyone who uses language in quite the way that Nan Shepherd is able to in this book. Outside of, you know, people like Robert McFarlane, who are just disgustingly clever. And I don't understand how they do it. Um, but she writes about the landscape in this really sensual, but also just, she writes about the landscape with just such clarity that you really feel like you're living in nature with her at that moment. She observes these minute details about the air and the water and the sounds of the birds in this really fulfilling and sensual way. And I feel like, I don't know if you've ever read, like, The Power of Now or some slightly bullshit self-help book. This is, like, the actual practical, non-shit version of that. This is, about, like, teaches you through reading it how to actually, like, live in the moment and absorb the magic of the world around you. Um, and she just has these incredibly powerful sentences. I took a highlighter mercilessly to this book, which I never normally <laughs> do because I feel like that's destroying something beautiful. But she says things like, the mountain gives itself most completely when I have no destination. The mountain gives itself most completely when I have no destination, when I reach nowhere in particular, but have gone out merely to be with the mountain, as one visits a friend with no intention but to be with him. And the whole book is like that, and it just makes you want to cry because it's so beautiful. And now I miss Scotland a lot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and now that brings us to the final segment of our podcast, which is the Shook Book. The Shook Book. The Shook Book is where we record things that have got us shook. This could be pet peeves, things that annoy us. It could be things that blew our mind when we learned them. Of course, if you want to read the Shook Book, you can find every single thing that we're going to 
kind of include in it on our social media accounts. So that's at Cuspers Pod on Instagram and Twitter. So please do follow us and share the things that get you shook. Maddie, what are you adding to the shook book today? My God, I've got such a large list. Right. Uh, so number one, um, weird celebrity couples that you never knew dated in the late 90s. That really scares the shit out of me. Um, X I A 12 also known as Zasha Archangel, whatever the fuck, the Grusk baby. My God. Um, also, people who leave, leave toothpaste around the lid of the toothpaste bottle, uh, they have me shook because they need to die. Um, also, closely related to people who use the butter knife and then put the butter knife into the jam jar. That's the same circle of hell. Um, um, and the final thing is um, an ongoing academic discourse drama um, in African studies, specifically Somali studies. There's a hashtag called Kadan Studies, which is white studies in Somali, started by a Harvard scholar called Safia Aidid. Um, sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong. Um, that's in response to the decision, the absolutely inane decision by four white European students at the um, SOAS to set up a Somali culture and histor- history journal that doesn't have a single Somali editor, investor, contributor or writer. And I cannot for the life of me understand how they got through their education and then came out the other side thinking, this is a good idea that we shall do. Um, But because the world is shit, apparently everyone's piling on this poor woman who's trying to point out that this is obviously racist and colonial bullshit. So those are all the things that have me shook. Okay, so... Um, we will be including the full list into the shook book. <laughs> Maddie, you can, you brought a shook library. You were just like, you're the D- James Daunt of shook. Um, okay, so I think let's talk about celebrity culture and also X um, Ash A12. Because the thing that I was going to say uh, I'm shook about is that um, Elon Musk is now like telling people to take the red pill oh god and nothing elon musk does surprises me anymore like at this point just every week i'm like of course of course elon musk has now released a rap track singing about harambe of course elon musk has now been filmed like getting stoned on an interview with joe rogan of course elon musk is now calling an eminent british diver a pedophile on twitter you know i he's just absolutely beyond the pale i mean Elon Musk is strange because, like, unlike some other billionaires or millionaires who we just who were just clearly psychopaths, like Jeff Bezos, I do genuinely believe that like part of Elon Musk has his heart in the right place. He's just also so immensely overprivileged and clueless that he's constantly behaving like a total twat. But then he will go and do something actually quite useful, like putting a lot of money into trying to find alternative ways to. Um, like do basically um, financial transactions that is going to benefit like loads of people who are unbanked around the world and you think okay this guy is actually like kind of trying but then he also has um, Azela Banks live in his house for three days (laughs) while he shoots acid in the kitchen so oh my god yeah nothing surprises me with this lot anymore I mean I think it is the it is the peak level of um 
so just like celebrity inanity you know yeah. it's like we had the we had the celebrities who gave their kids names like apple we had the celebrities who just like lived on fucking theme parks mm-hmm. um and now we've just reached the point where that has crystallized into its purest essence you can get it in little bottles people add them to cakes now it's just like essence of celebrity Essence of of pure insanity. Elon Grimes? When Grimes and Elon Musk came out together at the Met Gala, and my brain sort of did some kind of nuclear explosion, because those are just two worlds that I never possibly thought would intersect within my, like, pop cultural understanding of the universe. Um, And then two weeks later, when I was thinking back on it, after I'd gotten over the initial shock, um, I was like, this makes absolute sense, because they're both raging narcissists. They're perfect for each other. Everything that they do is like cyberpunk narcissism so (laughs) i'm not i'm not entirely convinced that um grimes being in a relationship and having a baby with elon musk isn't just some sort of like big art project oh no 100 percent. she's gonna like write some book in 20 years time saying how this was all an experiment and actually it's some kind of like feminist edgy way that she's pushing the voice of progressive metal pop punk, except that you can't put her into a genre because she's grimes and she elevates every genre. Um, Yeah, I completely believe that that's what's going to happen. And Elon Musk is just going to be left sat in the dust, like high off his face, but like with no clue what the hell just happened to him. Do you know why she's called Grimes? No, why is she called Grimes? We can add this to the shook book too. Oh, please don't tell me she's like called herself after actual grime. She was filling out a MySpace and it asks you for your three favorite music genre and she picked grime for each of the three, not knowing what it was. What? What an asshole. That's such a grime thing to do. That is like peak overprivileged white feminism. The definition of that in the dictionary is Grimes. Oh, <laughs> uh, could you imagine like Wiley or Dizzy Rascal or Kano or Lethal Bizzle if they knew who she was when that happened? <laughs> I, sp- I now am going to start a Twitter thread, which is specifically me petitioning Skepta to write a diss track about Grimes. <laughs> <laughs> I for one can't wait. Um, maybe we can get him on Cuspers. I think he'd love to be on Cuspers pod. Stormzy would definitely be well up for being on Cusper's pod. Stormzy's like all into his political activism. Not that I'm saying that this is a politically active podcast, but it would be if you got Stormzy on it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not quite sure we're ready to talk about controversial issues. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Stormzy might say something that will get you cancelled by all the gammon on the internet. <laughs> and then I could frame it like my bad reviews. Yay! Oh, maybe I should. I don't know. I do. I do kind of want to be cancelled, but I think I want <laughs> just to see what it's like one time, just to have yeah, that but... experience. Yeah, but like, just I think that's definitely a terrible reason to do it. I'm as narcissistic <laughs> as Musk and Grimes. I'm just differently narcissistic. <laughs> you just use your powers for chaotic good instead of just chaotic neutral, which is what T- TBT to the full year that Cuspers was called the Dishcast. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a good name. I think fair. it is a good name. And on that note, um, <laughs> no, Maddie, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. You're welcome back on this podcast anytime because, you know, the things that you say and that we get to talk about, I always think are really so eye-opening, often mind-blowing, occasionally thought-provoking. And stupid beyond belief. <laughs> and always stupid beyond belief. Uh, yes. Um, so thank you for attending. This is the chance for you to plug anything you want to plug. I would like to plug my podcast, 
which is called Red Shirts. Red Shirts cast on Spotify, SoundCloud and iTunes. It's a Star Trek comedy podcast where myself and another Trekkie, Nathan Thomas, try to educate Jake Donaldson, a comedian and Star Trek noob, about the wonders of Star Trek. And each episode, we start off by critically analysing an episode of Star Trek and then immediately descend into very NSFW and terrible jokes about Vulcan pornography, Klingon penises, and the running gag of the show, Sexy Vulcan Liam Gallagher. You're welcome. Um, God. And that's just episode one. <laughs> and that's just episode one. <laughs> um... All right, perfect. And if people want to find you on social media, just remind them where they can do that. Yeah, so you can go to Twitter and find me at Paper Tiger Maddie, also Paper Tiger Maddie on Goodreads, on WordPress, and I'm The Wuzzy on Instagram. And if you want to follow me, you can find me at that Nish Cray on Instagram or at Nish underscore Hegday like my name and an underscore like the thing people do when their names have been taken um, on Twitter. <laughs> And of course, you know where to find Cuspers because you're listening to it. But please do make sure to leave a review or a comment if you like it. Um, or just share it with someone else who might like it too. You can find us on all social media at Cuspers Pod. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye.